I V M. My eyes were burning, stinging. The smoke was really coming through now. Shattered glass everywhere, explosions going off one after the other, non-stop gunfire, water from the broken pipe flooding the floor, the ceiling falling in and the fire was getting closer. I remember just talking to God, praying, and then getting really angry and thinking, "No God, this is not for me. I'm not going to die hiding under a coffee table at the Taj Hotel. So deal with it. Fix it." I just remember fighting with God and saying, "You can't do this to me. This is not my way out. This is not my exit." That was an excerpt from an article in the Guardian by Dalbir Benz. She was inside the Taj Hotel on 26 November 2008. the day when 10 terrorists managed to shake the city of mumbai to its core this is the pragati podcast and this week marks 10 years of the 2611 mumbai terror attacks hi you're listening to the pragati podcast with me hamsini hariharan and pavan shrinath on 26 november 2008 10 terrorists arrived at mumbai by sea and attacked the chatrapati shivaji station the taj hotel nariman house leopold cafe and the obroy trident much has been said about the resilience of the city that never sleeps but no one should ever be forced to go through what the residents of mumbai went through 10 years ago how did we let the 2611 attacks happen where did we fail have we corrected those failings to ensure india's national security This is what we're discussing today with our guest Deeraj PC. Deeraj is a doctoral candidate at the University of Leicester where he covers strategic and military intelligence in South Asia. Before we begin the podcast, I do have a small piece of news. This will be my last episode as the host of the Pragati podcast. There's more information on that at the end of this episode. But first, a short break. Hey, it's been another great week on IVM Podcast. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This week we have a new history podcast, Echoes of India with Anirudh Kanisetti. The inaugural episode narrates the story of Gandhara, the melting pot of the ancient world where Indo-Greeks worshipped Greco-Indian gods. On Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch. Varun recollects his early days as an intern on MTV Pakra, his many oddball jobs and his new podcast Advertising is Dead. Yes, that's right. He has a new podcast launching on the 27th. Each week Varun will discuss the changes and developments in the business of advertising, branding, content media and a whole range of issues that exist within the industry. Episodes are out every Tuesday. On the scene in the unseen Amit Verma is joined by author and journalist Matt Ridley to discuss the evolution of the universe, life, culture, our minds and our futures. On the Geek Fruit podcast, Tejas and Dinkar slowly lose their mind while they're trying to process just how much they were disappointed by the Fantastic Beasts sequel. Last week on IVM Likes, Abbas and Surbhi talk about Homecoming, the podcast versus Homecoming, the show. Also, we're reaching a hundred episodes of IVM Likes soon. Share your favorite moments from the show with us and your most memorable recommendations. You can write to us at shows at indusfox dot com. Also, send us a voice note if you can, and we'll play it on the hundredth episode. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. We are your hosts Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Srinath and we're joined by Deeraj PC. Hi Deeraj, welcome to the Pragati podcast. Hi Pavan, thank you very much. Pleasure being here. Deeraj, we are recording this episode on the anniversary of 2611, one of the worst terrorist incidents to have happened on Indian soil if not the worst. Yes, that's true. Can you tell us a little about what all happened because it's been so many years maybe there are some of our listeners who were quite young when it happened so first give us a recap of what happened and then let's take it from there 
So, well, uh, the idea to have a Mumbai attack was conceived much earlier in, say, 2006 and 2007, while uh, it was called Operation Bombay. Because to understand the 2611 attack, you need to go back to 1993, when uh, the city had witnessed one of the worst serial explosions to ever happen on planet Earth. Yeah. So, so when that happened, there was a final stage which included armed assault on places like Shiv Sena Bhavan and all those things, which it did not happen. And the simple reason it did not happen was that the terrorists were not very well trained. They were just boys who were into organized crime in Mumbai. And because of this failure, the Pakistani ISI had learned that now we need to carry out an operation which has very little reliance on the local population, local Indian population. So right at that point in time, what had happened was there was a man by the name David Coleman Headley, who uh, was formerly a DIA agent. The a DIA drug- is the... Drug, DEA, Drug Enforcement Authority, that's the anti-narcotic intelligence agency in the United States. So he was actually caught in uh, the Frankfurt airport with some amount of drugs. And so he said that he'll work for, he, he agreed to work with the DEA and the DEA said that, okay, you can work with us. And they put him back into the Afghan-Pakistan region. And he is also from Pakistani origin. His father was a Pakistani and his mother was an American. So eventually he started to play everybody. And then once, while he was in Pakistan, it struck him that, you know, he could be a valuable asset for the uh, Lashkar-e-Toiba. He wanted to be an active operative, but then his age did not allow that to happen. So what the lashkar e decided was, look, we've got a smart chap here who looks white, who can blend into the Indian population under the guise of being a Westerner. So what he, we'll use him as an intelligence agent. He will go and he'll recreate all the spots and he'll come back and then we'll carry out our operations. So what started off as Operation Bombay turned into one of the most horrendous seaborne terrorist attacks that the world has seen till today. So on... 26th November, a boat set sail from uh, the port of Karachi and then they intercepted an Indian boat, which is called Kuber, off the shores of Gujarat. They killed all the crew members, they hijacked it and then they used that boat to get to the shores of Bombay. So Dheeraj, this was an operation that was conducted by Pakistan, the putative Pakistani state, which involves the army and the ISI and everyone, right? This is not not even originating from Pakistani soil, but away from Pakistani state? There's only one simple answer to this. That the Lashkar-e-Taiba specializes in fidayan attacks can only be attributed to the genius of Pakistani counter-terrorist forces. You have the SSG, the Special Services Group, which is Pakistan's elite counter-terrorist unit. So now when you have a counter-terrorist unit that is training a terrorist group, Lashkar-e-Taiba for instance here, Now, the counter-terrorist group pretty much knows how the globe is going to respond when there's a terrorist attack. So, you see, the terrorist group has every sort of information, intelligence that is required in your planning stage. So, this attack, the Mumbai attacks of 2611, was planned and carried out. And not only planned and carried out, there was real-time intelligence flowing from Pakistan. So, there's no denying that Pakistan was involved in this. Okay, so state-sponsored terrorists from the coast of Karachi capture a boat off the coast of Gujarat and then they come to Bombay. Then what happens? That's a good question. So what happens is, it was an auspicious moment for the terrorists and it was they were, they were, they were seriously lucky because it was the day when uh, India was playing England. There was a cricket match. So the shows were pretty much empty. So they could easily walk in. And at 9.40 in the night, that's 2100 hours uh, and 40 minutes, on 26 November 2008, they begin to open fire. And the first thing, ha- they begin to open fire in five different locations. right? So when this happens, the first problem that we face we faced then was that the Mumbai police did not identify the nature of this threat. They thought that this was a pretty gang war. And 
Okay. So when, when there's a difference between tackling a gang war and difference between tackling a terrorist attack. So we'll get to that later. But this is what happened initially. They went on a killing spree, and eventually they got into uh, the Taj Mahal Hotel, mm-hmm. the Nariman House, which is the Jewish cultural center, uh, the Oberoi Hotel. Uh, they were at the Chhatrapati Shivaji Terminal and Leopold Cafe and all these places. So they went also on also near kin- Hotel Oberoi, right? Yeah, yes, yes, Hotel Oberoi as well. So all in all, totally, they killed around 166 people and uh, injuring a lot more. Uh, and the operations went on for three days when the energy came down. And uh, finally, nine of these terrorists were gunned down and one terrorist was caught. Now, to speak about the significance of this terrorist being caught, uh, if you have heard of Sun Tzu, the intelligence czar from China, yes. he tells one thing, all warfare is based on deception. Now, if you take 2611, for instance, that was also completely based on deception. Here you have a group that is coming from uh, Pakistan, waging a war against India. It was an act of terrorism, but if you read the Pradhan uh, Committee report, they use the word act of war at least 30 times. So it must be considered as war. So you have these chaps coming here, opening fire, and while the operations are going on, the handlers release a letter to the Indian media telling that this is being conducted by a group called Deccan Mujahideen. Okay? And they operate out of Hyderabad, Deccan? Yes, yes. They, oper- they, uh, they apparently operated out of Hyderabad as Deccan Mujahideen. Not just that, these guys were all wearing saffron hand hand ribbons, which Hindus wear, which was procured from Siddhivinayak Temple in Bombay. Which means, when you had all the 10 terrorists dead, you wouldn't know, I mean, who was involved in these operations. If you recollect, before 2008 uh, Mumbai attacks, there were a few bomb blasts in Mumbai, which in which you didn't know who the perpetrators were, whether it was Hindu extremists or whether it was uh, the, the Rashkar Toiba. So they wanted to create a scenario where the communal fault lines in India are aggravated and Hindus and Muslims get into conflict once more. So with the capture of Ajmal Kasab, all of these came out. So to put into context what happened in 2611, there are three things that you need to understand. One is of the Pakistani deep state, which we have established. Second is that economic targets... You know, they, they principally want to attack economic targets because that will have a crippling effect on India's image globally. And third thing is that the communal aspect in uh, in Indian society, which is seen as a major fault line, that is something time and again Pakistan has tried to exploit and they will continue to exploit. So this threat perception still exists till today. And further, if I may add, probably the attack worked far better than how the Pakistani state expected, Right. Is that uh, a fair statement to make? Or was this like a wild dream of theirs to have? Or did they achieve all their objectives? Did they exceed expectations with some of their objectives? Or did they fail them? Both the 1993 attacks as well as the 2008 Mumbai attacks were, as a matter of fact, an experimental attack, to be honest. Because, like I said, in 1993, the final objective wasn't achieved. The assault did not happen. Even here, in 2611, Despite all the training and whatever they went through, the final objective of communal violence did not happen. And that did not happen because one of the main things that I did not want it to happen, the very fact that it was a Fidayan operation, meant that they fought until death. But a man was captured. One Fidayan was captured. That itself was a failure. That's very interesting. And you mentioned Fidayin earlier too. So Fidayin means fighting till you die. Yes. And also this is something that we have seen more in the Middle East with uh, Palestine and in Jerusalem and so on than it is a, than it's been a feature in the Indian subcontinent, right? Right, yeah. This, I mean, uh, so the Pakistani state has 
been influenced by the developments in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for a long time. If you go back to the 90s when uh, the Kashmiri insurgency was brewing and the Pakistanis were trying to persuade the local Kashmiris to you know, rise up against the state, Indian state, what they practically doing was they were trying to bring in the results of Intifada 1 and Intifada 2 in the What Middle is East. the Intifada? Sorry. The Intifada is where... Uh, it is no more the Palestinian Liberal, uh, Liberation Organization or any other uh, recognized terrorist group that is attacking the Israelis, but the people themselves started to rise up against them. They, that's when the stole pelting and all of that began. And so they wanted the Kashmiri population to replicate that. And around the same time, you know, say early 2000s, that's when they conceived the idea of Fidayin attacks. But the difference was that during that time, the lashkar e and the ISI wanted to carry out Fidayin attacks against Hard military targets, not soft targets. Hmm. The first such attack on soft targets came in 2002 when they attacked Akshardham in Gujarat. Right. Yeah, that was also an incident where hmm. NSG was called in. So that was for the first time then they did it. And after that, there was a long gap. And that is where, you know, when we, we talk about institutional memory and all that, that is where it just faded from our memory. We did not know that, we, we forgot that something like this happened and it could happen in Bombay as well. Dheeraj, you told us a little bit about how Pakistan had these larger objectives they wanted to meet and those were not met. One, Kasab was caught alive and two, communal uh, violence didn't flare up in Mumbai the way it might have, you know, two or three decades uh, earlier. How do you evaluate the Indian response to 2611? I'm also seeing this as the first sort of major terrorist attack in India, which had sort of live media coverage and that's had its own problems. Yes. Um, we know about several members of the uh, National Security Group, the NSG sort of dying while trying to capture these terrorists. Uh, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing that's happened about the NSG, about the Mumbai police, right. um, overall intelligence failure, a lot of these things. How do you really assess our response to this? Well, speaking about the 2611 attacks, one would have to approach the problem of 2611 at two levels. Saying the first level is that of coastal security and the second is of counter-terrorism. Right? Right. So, coastal security. Now, coastal security is a very big challenge in India. It's a very, very big challenge simply because we have a 7,000 odd kilometers coastline uh, and there are vast seas after that and we've never taken it seriously. Right? So, one of the problems that we've had, I mean, a lot of changes have happened ever since 2611 has happened. We have uh, raised our technical platforms on the coastline. We've had the integrated underwater harbor defense surveillance systems. We've had uh, automatic identification systems and so many technical systems have come up. But the question is, can they achieve what they intend to achieve? And there, I think that technical intelligence always has its limits. What you need is human intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, technical intelligence, yes, for constant monitoring of the coast and all that, they do. it is really good. Like, for instance, if you take the automatic identification systems, they identify the boats that come in and go out. But the point is to identify the boat has to have a transmitter where they can, you know, communicate with each other. So all these, they have their own limitations. But speaking about human intelligence, now the problem here is that there are a lot of agencies operating. You have the Indian Navy and the Sagar Prahari Bulb under the Indian Navy. You have the Indian Coast Guards. Uh, you have the Marine Police, and now the center wants to bring up something called the Central uh, Marine Police Force, which is like the BSF. And I am personally not uh, with the idea of having a Central uh, Marine Police Force. So with so many uh, agencies working to keep the coast secure, there is tend to be an overlapping, not only an overlapping, there is a tendency of uh, 
you're not being very serious because one tends to think that the other guy is doing his job. Yeah, there's always a free rider effect right, when yeah. you have so many bureaucracies exactly. that are working together with similar but different mandates. Right, right that's true. So, with all, with whatever investments has has gone into this, the government has has been spending hundreds of crores in uh, in securing a coastline and all that. But what I feel is that we lack what we call as maritime consciousness, and that is what is essential if we have to thwart not just uh, seaborne terrorist attacks but to just make sure that the, that our coast is safe and we get every value possible from the natural resources around it so what is maritime consciousness this is something which has been in the literature for a long time but seriousness of this is only understood recently after china has got aggressive in the south china sea and other places so since the 1980s what the chinese did was they introduce this concept of uh, maritime consciousness in their own uh, mandarin parlance just to make sure that the chinese population which was until then land oriented realizes the importance of uh, the maritime domain and what has happened over the last 20 30 years is that even now even if the chinese government you know suddenly wakes up one day and thinks that look we don't want to get into the south china sea dispute anymore let's just draw back and just sit in our cocoons the chinese population will not allow that to happen because here is a huge population that is completely aware of how important this region is to them right but we lack that kind of an in- so understanding so does this idea often with people who have distance from delhi saying hmm. that there is so much over emphasis on our land borders right but none almost on our sea borders is right. that the idea of maritime consciousness yeah partly right i mean i don't want maritime consciousness to come at the cost of territorial consciousness both need to go hand in hand but the point is see we have had a glorious past you know in terms of maritime security long ago you know we were one of i think the kingdom of travancore was one of the earliest to take on the dutch and all that and so, even before that you had the cholas having an expedition yeah, force exactly. right but but yeah it's this broad idea that i mean it's reflected in our forces right you look at the indian navy it's the smallest of the three between the army and the air force exactly it's a travesty Uh, in fact, uh, you know, General Prakash Menon, who uh, works with us at Takshashila, is he's a very rare infantryman who says we need a bigger navy. Right? Okay, I mean, okay. We, we have a fairly infantry-dominated thinking on our military forces in India, and right? that's also because our threats have traditionally focused on Pakistan. They focused on China, right? And we and and we want to fight China in the Himalayas, not in South China Sea. Well, if you if or you, the Bay of Bengal, if you from the position of strength are deciding the theater of operation. it's very well but that's not the point that's not how it's working here mm. right so what happens is when you're talking about the indian ocean arabian sea and the bay of bengal it's not just about securing these uh, fr- these maritime frontiers we are also talking about the kind of opportunities we have there right so from the perspective of all of it we need the public and because in democracies end of the day it is public pressure which works why do you think pakistan is always bought into our uh, political narrative because it is politically lucrative right now we have to make the maritime domain politically lucrative so when we as the indian citizens when the population begins to understand why the maritime domain is important you know, why we need to secure our coastline and that kind of pressure reflects in reflects politically that is when see for example you had the idea of having a national maritime authority and that's just been lying there in the limbo nobody is talking about it seriously why and as as a, if i am a politician even i wouldn't why would i because the people are not really serious about it and what am i going to get by doing this literally nothing so you may have some people who are you know 
very high on uh, national security i'm a good example of that talking about all this but people don't take me seriously right so, and it's the same when it comes to trade exports other things i mean i have a friend who works in the shrimp export industry right. and the idea is when we people talk about food processing and agriculture and um, sort of the food sector people think farming right <laughs> right not so much about aquaculture about fishing and so on. that's secondary right so i completely get your point yeah. so this is about this marine orientation right. which which you highlight which is very the, important the, the only time when we talk about the maritime domain or coastal security is when we have a conflict with sri lanka with the tamil fishermen you know getting uh, and they cross waters in between each other right that's the, that's only, the only time. time so we can't always wait for a crisis to happen right absolutely and so this is about maritime orientation and coastal security right the second part which i think is more interesting and maybe we'll spend more time on is on counterintelligence right so yeah counterterrorism counterterrorism yes yeah. let's talk about that what But, is counterterrorism right at the beginning it's just how to dismantle terrorism is it the same as anti-terrorism or what is well yeah that's a good distinction and i would prefer the term anti-terrorist to be associated with me because counterterrorism includes a lot it includes de-radicalization and xyz but uh, i think right now we'll just stick to anti-terrorism but yeah counterterrorism will have a small part of it because since when we uh, established the threat perception i did speak about the communal violence part which includes a significant part of it includes radicalization and de-radicalization so there we do have counterterrorism as well so being an academic who specializes in intelligence studies i it is my duty to let you all know that the very approach that we take to counterterrorism is quite wrong we need to approach it not as an intelligence problem but as a problem of counterintelligence right and the solution then lies in both defensive and offensive counterintelligence now it gets too academic but i'll try to simplify it for you so what exactly is counterintelligence so counterintelligence for a layman what does a counterintelligence organization do a counterintelligence organization tries to unearth foreign en- foreign enemy spies within your own territory and disrupt whatever operations they are conducting here now if you take any terrorist operation until the end operation in the end of the operation until you have a bomb blast or a fidayan attack commenced it is an intelligence operation in progress continually from the planning stage until then it is an intelligence operation so we as indians if you have to thwart their attacks if you have to disrupt their plans we'll have to take a counterintelligence position so what does counterintelligence entail there are four different parts one is counter espionage counter subversion counter sabotage and counter deception okay. so i'll take simplify each of them that simplify it okay so counter espionage is self explanatory you have spies espionage is you know gathering secret information which any which the hosts want to conceal okay so for example take 2611 you had david coleman headley visiting india he had set up his offices here and he was going on a recce mission capturing photographs and all that but the ib did nothing about it this right? is the intelligence bureau yeah the intelligence bureau which is india's premier counterintelligence uh, agency they did not act on it and no intelligence operation can happen without local support hmm. okay far away from 20 uh, from mumbai talk about kashmir also for example now the kashmir insurgency of the kashmir militancy is sustaining simply because they have a level of local support who supply intelligence to them so counter espionage is to infiltrate these groups and try to see what kind of information is being sold to them right so and that do this legally with proper frameworks in a republic yes yeah, see uh, when you talk about counter intelligence it means that you're disrupting foreign intelligence plans it already means that there is a group which is working against your legal positions 
okay and to disrupt their plans yes you need a legal framework i'm not disputing that okay but during the time at, at uh, when you look at operations per se i think legality has very little to do it is only disruptive rather than facilitate i think uh, dheeraj is saying all is fair in love and war and uh, uh, intelligence is war <laughs> <laughs> no because if we, fair if enough, I, that's that i mean that is a in, interesting debate for a later day i mean there's also i think a lawyer in bangalore called aditya sondhi who's been working on how the very laws that have set up some of our intel and counter intelligence agencies have very questionable so which is again i don't deny it at all because it's a, a different discussion yeah it's a different discussion but if i can just say one sentence on this the these institutions are an inheritance from the colonial times and nothing has changed since then so the institutions that were established to protect colonial interests what more can you expect from them so whatever complaints you have against uh, the legal aspect i do agree with you but as far as counter terrorism goes i think we'll have to be very uh, very careful about what we talk about because everything that we talk about every uh, legal aspect that we talk about may not be applicable in the counter terrorism part definitely and we are in the times of finally getting rid of section 377 so so when it comes to sort of going post colonial on our <laughs> counter intelligence laws so maybe the time will come right oh, okay I, fair enough yeah so so first part you said was the counter, counter espionage, espionage. Okay. okay so infiltrated groups and then you get your uh, intelligence yeah that's that's one part of it the the second aspect is counter sabotage for instance yeah so sabotage is basically disrupt, destroying of whatever instruments that you have infrastructure or anything that is the end goal of the terrorists it may, not, it may not be the end goal but the end of the operation that is to you know for example what did the 2611 uh, attackers want to do they wanted to attack taj they wanted to attack nariman house and all that so when you have a piece of information that for uh, that they're going to attack a particular set of infrastructure of yours now a traditional intelligence system how, the way it works you will wait for the intelligence agency to tell you what kind of uh, attack is going to take place but in counter intelligence because you're always anticipating an attack you're always anticipating uh, you're waiting for the enemy forces to have their own intelligence operations so you begin to think like the enemy you begin to uh, think critically and think of various possibilities that could happen right so if i was a counter intelligence agent and i got an information telling that this building is going to be attacked by virtue of my training i will think of what are the possible ways that this building could be attacked and that is what happened in 2611 was when they had a little bit of information a little bit of intelligence that uh, taj was going to be attacked they had all the bomb squad ready but he, he, you didn't have terrorists who were, who were interested in you know exploding bombs they came with rifles and we were not ready for it but a counter sabotage guy would think of all the possibilities so we did have bomb squads ready at the taj yes not just bomb squads we had cops there but the cops didn't really know why why they were standing there right okay yeah okay. so that is a, a different di- uh, discussion altogether because we talk about centralization and decentralization of authority that will get to that la- a little later so we did have some intel so from a counter espionage point of view it was not a complete failure we had some signals coming in right. that something might yes, happen yes 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 so all this leads to one point that i want to make at the end that intelligence has its limits in counter terrorism and that is where we need to discuss about the response part if you are thinking that intelligence can completely you know eradicate the problem of terrorism for us then we are living in a fool's paradise that's not going to happen hmm. right so we spoke about uh, counter espionage and counter uh, sabotage veeraj thank you we've been talking about counter espionage and we've just started talking about uh, the response counter uh, sabotage counter sabotage and we'll talk more about that after the short break how aware do you think you are of your laws and rights 
Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune into Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. Welcome back. Dheeraj, tell us more about the response that we had, the counter-sabotage part of what happened in 2611. Uh, how do you... So one part of it was perhaps the local police infrastructure. The other part was the NSG, right? Our elite anti-terrorism groups. Is that even a correct formulation? Uh, no, I think you got me wrong here because the NSG is a responder. It doesn't figure here. We are talking about prevention right now. So at the prevention stage, it's only about intelligence operations. And there, my argument is that we need to take a counterintelligence role rather than uh, an intelligence uh, methodology of fighting terrorism. Okay, so you right? have counter-espionage, counter-sabotage. What are the other two? The third one is counter-subversion. Okay. Right? So like I said, uh, the entire operation, though it was conceived in Pakistan, it was facilitated by some groups within uh, India. Maybe not to the extent that the 1993 blast had. But yeah, you had some people like uh, Abu Jundal and few other guys uh, who had supported them. They worked in procuring those ID cards from Hyderabad, getting those saffron threads from Siddhivinayak Temple and all of that. So it was an operation which had local support, albeit in a very limited fashion. Hmm. So which means that there, in, within your population, there are people who are willing to support them. Which means there are, it, it could be for several reasons. Okay, since we are talking about the western coastline, right? And we are sitting here in a state today who's, who's recently had uh, the state elections. And if you've noticed the ca entire campaigning, half of it was done on Hindu-Muslim, you know. Uh, Lines, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when there's so much of disharmony existing, there's always room for so much of hatred to, you know, show up in some form of extremism or terrorism, right? So counter-subversion is you infiltrate groups. The very word infiltrate may seem wrong and I think that is what provoked you to ask the question there. It's not just infiltrating. See, uh, counter-terrorism is essentially, it should be seen as a policing and law enforcement duty, not a military duty, you know. So when you see, when you say policing duty, right, you see cops around you every time. It's not that they're threatening you. It's not that they're here to intervene in your life. It is to make sure that nothing wrong happens, all right? And so you see, uh, there, there is, uh, you're traveling on the road, you see two cars meet with an accident and immediately the cop comes there. He comes there because he wants to make sure that the two guys don't start fighting with each other, right? You want to de-escalate situations as much as possible yes, in any scenario. Right, right. And keep the threat perception as low as possible, right? So in counter-subversion, you infiltrate groups, you get into groups which, which, are uh, which are communally charged and all that and see how the emotions are working out. And that will give you a fair idea of if there is a possibility of a terrorist attack going to happen. Okay, and, and you now, diffuse emotions where you can. Yes, exactly. Okay, and you shouldn't look at it in isolation. Okay, you should look at counter-subversion alongside counter-sabotage and counter-espionage. And the last point is deception. What does deception mean? I mean, deception is actually planting misinformation so as to uh, misguide your enemy. Right? That's what happens. So, throughout the First World War, Second World War, any war you take, for example, military leadership has always been involved in uh, deception. This happens more so when you want to serve your resources and take the enemy by surprise. Right? Now, in counter-intelligence, Deception plays a very important role because you don't want the enemy to know what you know about him, right? So that is where you have planting of your sources and all that and then you keep sending misinformation. In fact, deception had a reverse role in 2611. When uh, the boat set sail from Karachi port, right? 
our security forces they were busy looking in the sir creek area uh, in gujarat this is because daud's gang had uh, sent a misinformation that there are terrorists or there are smugglers over there and we were just go- we were looking for everything over there while these people very this is safe and secure india pakistan land and coastal border in gujarat right near yeah. kutch yes yes it's it's called the bastard channel harami nala uh, so that's what it's called yeah. really yeah because it changed it keeps changing its trajectory okay yeah so it sometimes goes into the uh, pakistan has a lot of it a lot of the territory while we have more of it so what happens is the uh, the poor fishermen who go on, who go to fish right they don't really know whose waters they've entered and that's why they call it the bastard channel because there's no clear clarity of who you belong to Right? Wow. Today I learned moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. So, so there was misinformation from Daud Ibrahim and others in right. Pakistan telling us that hey, something might be happening there. Right. Whereas the real stuff was going down near exactly. Mumbai. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, in counterintelligence operations, this may again seem cynical, but this is how it works. You deception works this way that you make the terrorists believe that everything is going as per their plan, and in the final moment you apprehend them. Okay. Okay. you don't catch them too early otherwise they'll yes. run away or yes, you don't try because because a terrorist attack is just one of uh, the entire uh, larger strategic plan that they have because terrorism is only means to something that they want to achieve right so you may thought one terrorist attack but something larger might be brewing for all you know that like i said deception works on the other side also right so they may send a small group to deliberately get caught so that they know how we respond to all these things okay Okay, so it's a continuous mom uh, thing, right? So it's it's like this, man. So if I can, uh, if you want me to explain in simple words the difference between warning intelligence and counterintelligence. Ten years ago, when everything was good in Bangalore, you had three months of all seasons, right? You had uh, three months of summer, followed by three months of spring, and then followed by winter. Small, sorry, yeah, in whatever order, right? So the point is, when you know exactly what is going to happen, right? The probability of it raining during the summer is very, very low. But imagine you're all out there enjoying, having fun, traffic jams and all that. And suddenly it starts to rain, right? You're all wet. There's traffic commotion and all that. So the probability of it raining was low, but the impact is very high, right? But imagine you're in England, where it rains every other day. Right? You know how to handle it. The probability is very, very high that it'll rain. But when it rains, the impact is very low, as long as you've forgotten the umbrella or something like that, right? So in counterintelligence works on this paradigm that when we look at the role of counterintelligence in counterterrorism what we essentially are looking for is high probability and low impact scenarios where there's a high probability that terrorists will launch an attack but the impact should always be low right okay so that is why uh, i argue that when you talk about seaborne uh, terrorist attacks right cut down on the number of institutions that you have all these marine police xyz and all that make ib ib is uh the premier indian agency which takes care of counterterrorism but that i don't think they thought through all this it is one of the the primary reason for doing this is simply because ib is considered uh, to have internal security roles hmm. and we consider terrorism to be an internal security problem okay all right so i want to go back to um your assessment that generally terrorist attacks are high probability low impact, impact and yeah. that's how that's the counter intelligence hmm. view of it yeah. right so uh, let's talk about response um what happened at least in the mumbai uh, terror attacks is that there was a lot of criticism that the mumbai police didn't know what they were dealing with then the nsg came and after 3 days of i think siege or whatever the media called it at that point of time of the taj hotel um nine terrorists were shot and one was reprehended right right um so how do we rate that response right well in all honesty uh we need to we need to uh, blame the mumbai police and the nsg for a lot of things 
But when we take 2611 into consideration, that uh, the very fact that you're telling that they were criticized, we need to think about where the criticism came from. Okay. The criticism by and large came from the West. It was the Western politicians and the Western media which kept on criticizing Indian counter-terrorist responses. It was partly because they wanted to evade putting the blame on Pakistan for having carried out such an attack, even though we had real-time intelligence of their handlers talking with the terrorists. Right? Now, this happened, but there were honest Western academicians who specialize in the role of tactics in, uh, in counter-terrorist operations, and they very clearly, ex uh, explicitly expressed that no police force in the world was equipped to take on something like this. This was a deadly attack, but the first of its kind to be ever seen in the, the planet. Some people do say that in 1975, you had the Savoy attack in Israel, uh, where it was seaborne and things like that. But the kind of sophistry that uh, the 2611 attacks had was unprecedented. Even uh, to go ahead, uh, after 2611, you had attacks across Europe. For instance, you had uh, the November Paris attacks in 2015, all of these. And again, you have uh, experts commenting that these are Mumbai-style attacks. Some tactics may be similar to what happened in Mumbai. But overall, the very fact that they lacked state sponsorship, that they lacked this uh, special forces training and all that, makes, it gives me an impression that none of these qualify as a terrorist attack that can be analogous with the 2611 attacks. Okay. I agree with you that a lot of Western countries may have a bias in putting forward stringent criticisms of uh, what the response that we had. But as Indians, if we're looking at it, we can say that, yes, there were a lot of things that the Mumbai police and the NSG did right. But I also want to know what were the gaps? So, or okay. how should we be looking at let gaps? Me, let me first uh, establish the problem uh, well so that we understand where the problems lie and what needs to be fixed, all right? So if you look at terrorism per se in the world, terrorism reached its peak during the 70s. That's when uh, the Palestinian uh, liberation organizations were you know, active across the globe. You saw the Munich attack in 1972. And the Munich attack in 1972 is what revolutionized policing. Yeah. You know, in India, police have an aversion towards to the use of force. When I say use of force, they are lati-wielding. They may... They may freak out the common populace, you know, but they are not arms wielding police police forces. All right. In fact, armed uh, police in India are lower in the pecking order. That's right. That's in terms right. Of and prestige and so on. Then your traffic cops, right? Right. right. Whose prestige <laughs> is very high because the ability to extract rent from <laughs> the population is the highest. Uh, you'll have to ask the police regarding this. I don't want to comment on that. Yeah, uh, I will not put those words in your mouth. <laughs> right. Uh, so. Yeah, what I was telling was, even where we have armed police, these are only in insurgency-prone areas. It is not in big cities like Bangalore, Mumbai, Delhi, and X, Y, Z. It is only a post-2611 phenomena that you have uh, SWAT units and Force 1 and all those things coming up, right? So, when uh, in 1972, when the Munich attack happened, that is when it, it showed the glaring deficiencies in the German police. And what happened as a result was the birth of GSG-9, that's Grenzschutz Group A-9, which is the elite counter-terrorist uh, SWAT unit in the German police, right? At the same time, around the same time, what was happening in the United States was there were gang wars, all of which in, involved assault weapons and all of that. So the Los Angeles Police Department, they experimented with something called SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. It was initially called Special Weapons Attack Tactics and then eventually it became Special Weapons and Tactics. So they wanted to militarize the police to an extent where they can uh, take on these uh, guys who are, you know, gun-wielding criminals, basically, not really terrorists. So so that is happening in North America. 
and in uh, Europe and Asia where terrorism was brewing, you had incidents of hostage taking and flight hijacking, mm. right? So in both these instances, what happened was you had terrorists who would take hostages, all right? The end goal was to negotiate and have the demands met by the governments. That used to always happen. Even as uh, until 1999, the hijacking of the Indian aircraft, you've always had hijackers pu pu putting forth the demands and the governments either meeting them or whatever. And mostly the demands were, were, either were political or the release of terrorists or, you know, ransom or something like that. Right? And IC-814 was another example. Uh, yeah, of that. The, yeah, that is the 19 example that I was referring to. Right. So here what happens is these terrorist groups, though they are politically motivated, and they are willing to give up their lives for the political causes, they would always prefer to live, right? They said, yes, we are willing to die, and that's why we are here, you know. But then, if, I'm, if our uh, demands are met, we are willing to, uh, you know, uh, give away your hostages, and we are going to get out of here, right? So, when you have this sort of a threat perception, so what units uh, were meant to do is, like, we'll take the example for, of United States. They had, they had a negotiator within the SWAT team who was trained by uh, the FBI in negotiating skills, and they had uh, the operatives who were trained by the military to an extent, okay, in, in handling these special weapons. So the role of the negotiator was to buy as much time as possible, hmm. okay. So here the negotiator sits and he keeps negotiating with the terrorists inside or, or uh, the hijackers inside, and he has to buy as much time as possible, while the actual SWAT operatives, right, they keep rehearsing uh, on how to infiltrate the building and get the hostages out uh, safely. So right? they're sort of gathering tactical intelligence. Okay, what yes. things are open? How many people are there? Right. What can we do? What weapons they have? Hmm. They're doing all of that while the negotiators just... Yeah, they're doing all of that and they're also rehearsing because they need to know how to get in and how to get out, right? So they're rehearsing, right? right? Hmm. Which means the time factor is always on the SWAT side. No, it's not on the uh, terrorist side. And the role of the negotiator is more important here because he's trying to tire out the uh, terrorists, you know, because very soon combat stress, fatigue, all this sets in and up beyond which the terrorists will not know what to do. They either give up or they begin killing the terrorists. That's when these guys go in and begin to operate or whatever. And it's very rare that the terrorists used to kill the hostages, right? So what happens in this format is that the negotiator is the key man while the troops who are practicing, uh, who are rehearsing the whole operation, right? They are only playing a supportive role. Hmm. Okay. So what happened in 9-11? The 9-11 attacks became another revolutionary terrorist affairs simply because until then they're not seen something of uh, like a kamikaze style, you know, getting into buildings and all that. Now, why did this happen? For all the, uh, you know, we need to give due credit to the terrorists as well. They are intellectuals. Mind you, they are intellectuals. Because in during the 90s, the Algerian terrorists had wanted to do the same thing with, uh, with you know, taking the flight and getting uh, hitting it into the Paris Eiffel Tower. Yeah. But what happened was, they kept negotiating, they kept negotiating, and then finally, the pilot, he used his presence of mind, and he said, look, we are running out of fuel, we just need to land here, we'll refuel, and we'll, and then we'll take off. And in that small uh, window of opportunity that they got, the French GIGN, which is the NSG's counterpart there in, Fran in France, they carried out an operation, and they were neutralized, and the Al-Qaeda terrorists, they remembered this. And they said, look, if we give any opportunity for people to, you know, negotiate, then the advantage is on their court. Now, we don't have anything to do. So they said, we are going to have a bunch of uh, stupid guys who will only learn how to take off a flight, but will not learn how to land the flight. Right? And, and in all Fidayan operations, you need to understand the guys who finally get selected to become the Fidayans, right? They are highly stupid because it's very easy to motivate and radicalize a stupid person. 
if he can think for himself that is a big problem for the terrorist leaders there he has to be physically strong but mentally mentally he just has to be somebody is who is a yes sir kind of guy so at one level you're saying terrorists are intellectuals you'll get a lot of hate for that <laughs> it's all right it's all right <laughs> but uh, what is it to say no the enemy no thyself and you'll win all, I, um, i get your point battles, i mean there yeah. are people who are smart at controlling right others who might be misguided who might be easily persuaded who right. might you know be the faithful who will give up their lives for a noble cause kill other people for a for what they think is a noble cause right exactly. so you and need to be a certain level of motivated and also at a certain level not be sufficiently questioning exactly. and that can be that... coming from a complex set of social factors right i mean i mean they might be deprived in some way you might stoke their fears um, lot might happen Yes, so, and that's yes. a separate discussion. That's a separate discussion, but just to say that that is one of the reasons today terrorist structures have become increasingly hierarchical, and uh, the organized structures are in place in such a way that infiltration becomes very very difficult. And one of the reason is what you said now, but we can discuss it some other time and not today. Okay, so uh, coming back to what we were talking about, uh, so in all these instances where you see that the terrorists are willing to negotiate. The advantage is always with the SWAT units, and uh, and finally the terrorists lost it out. They literally could get nothing. So now, the Pakistani SSG that I was talking about, that their their special forces, they realize that look, this is how the counter-terrorist forces across the world are going to react, and so we need to train a set of guys who can just go on a killing spree where there's no time for negotiations and all that. So this previously these SWAT units they functioned on the assumption that the terrorists were willing to negotiate, so they had formulated a tactic called as CCN, that's Control, Contain, and Negotiate. right so you control the threat so you see uh, if you've seen in hollywood movies suddenly you see you have the cops coming in barricading sending all the people away uh, censoring the press and all that that's controlling and then you contain uh, the threat to a level as, as much as possible that's when the negotiator begins to talk communicate with the terrorist and then the negotiation part if it doesn't go well then you have the operations part happening and you neutralize yeah and you neutralize it right so keep it, so in what happened in this model is that the control part itself used to take more than an hour Right, you had more, nearly some ninety minutes to one hour, forty-five minutes for people to get to be contained because you had all the emergency services coming in and all that. Right? And it was difficult to contain because it was ha- happening simultaneously in so many places. Exactly. And it was supposed to spread to other places that we don't. The the five places that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, for example, right. was uh, not the only places where these terrorists were supposed to strike. Hmm. So just the fact that they stru- struck these places alone meant that this is where these attacks were contained. Right? So you're talking about how different, how 2611 was different from the previous thing. So hmm. we'll first uh, explain to the listeners what sure. the first part, right? So what happens in, when you spend hours together in controlling itself, and that is what happened in 2611. When that happened, immediately you had lati-willing policemen coming, and you know they they had they were trained in crowd controlling and not anything more, right? So they're trying to do that. But what happens in these uh, swarming attacks, right? Where swarming attacks uh, attacks are where you come like bees and you swarm and then you just uh, begin your operations. So in five different different locations these 10 terrorists operated in buddy pairs now working in buddy pairs is a hallmark of special forces operation you know for example if you take the death of sandeep punikrishnan in on 2611 he was operating with his buddy and his buddy was uh, injured badly and so he had to send him off to safety make sure that he is being given medical aid and then he went all by himself even chasing the terrorist even chasing the terrorist i think this was in taj if i'm not wrong i may be wrong on this and then he was shot there right so working in buddy pair is 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 a hallmark of uh, a special forces commando 
and with along with uh, many other things okay so this kind of a swarming attack when it happens so within say during 2611 what had happened was by the end of uh, the 3 days siege right there were 166 people by some accounts 170 180 people dead and more than 100 of them were killed in the first 1 hour or so wow yeah okay so because they went on opening fire on the public right so when you have to stop this you cannot work uh, under the assumption that these terrorists are willing to negotiate mm. right you can't spend the first 90 minutes just doing containment right yes that happens so we talked about the role of time as well here the time initially when you were negotiating negotiating with the terrorists you had time to rehearse your operations which means time was also on your ground mm. now the time has shifted onto the terrorist ground because they are just going on a killing spree time is a luxury for you now you can't afford to have it you need to go and tackle them as quickly eliminate them as quickly as possible so there are multiple factors now which have completely shifted onto the terrorist side now the final thing is that we need to understand with regards to the change in the nature of terrorist attacks is the role of the hostage okay initially when we spoke about the swat operations and the uh, the control contain and negotiate uh, strategy the role of the hostage was that he he or she who was uh, taken as a hostage was working as a bargaining chip right so you're here you're holding your hostages and you're negotiating with the government hmm. okay but now since you're here to kill as many as possible you're using hostages not as bargaining chips but as human shield right so because you know the nature of the game is different it's completely changed and that is what made the operation to extend from day 1 till day 3 people criticized that the nsg took 12 hours to come right from delhi to uh, mumbai now it was a cross country operation they had to come from manesar all the way to mumbai and there was this whole traffic jam and all that so these are things that can be solved they need to be rectified but to say that simply because nsg took so much time to come here i think that is quite ridiculous because even as late as 2015 when the uh, paris attacks happened the gign which is based in paris itself it took two and a half hours to come right and in 1980 when there was uh, when the iranian embassy was uh, attacked in london the british essays took 16 hours to come by which time 150 hours was lost right so this is not to say that we this is not to justify what happened then but all i'm saying is that couldn't have you know made any significant impact in on uh, indian counter terrorism on that particular day right and what happened after they came since i told that these uh, the nsg is modeled on the gsg9 and gign and all this they also work on the same paradigm that you know we are here to rescue people hmm. so when they began operating their goal was not to eliminate the terrorists but the goal was to save as much as many number of people as possible and that is why when people tell me that you know 166 people were killed and indian counterterrorism failed you need to understand the nsg and the marcos together they saved over 800 people who were locked up in those uh, hotel rooms and these energy commandos did not have any idea about what, what these buildings looked like so when you if you visit manesar any time uh, or any of these uh, commando uh, units across the world until uh, 2008 uh, mumbai attacks happened you had these commandos training in uh, dummy aircrafts or a single building and things like that they were never they never not anticipated the touch, right? yeah <laughs> such why huge buildings simply because it was if you think from that paradigm right the paradigm of uh, control contain and negotiate it is simply stupid for me as a terrorist to enter a mall or a building like taj mahal which so many multiple entries into it there's no time to negotiate because people will enter from anywhere and then they'll bump me off right but now they had taken such huge buildings and there's no intelligence about it at all so the only way they could get intelligence was from uh, the police who had engaged the terrorists until then they had no clue either and we, they did not have the layout of the buildings and all that so what they had to do was the role of snipers from then to now remained the same 
the only role that the snipers had in very rare cases did they actually snipe the main role was to act as a surveillance unit to observe and report and now since they did not know what is happening inside the snipers had to had to play that role okay right and so, even that was limited yes very limited very limited so between uh, them the marcos and the nsd saved around 800 people and only then did they go in fact when uh, sandeep unikrishnan was gunned down the the chief of the nsg did contemplate you know just stopping the operation there and moving elsewhere because the death of nsg commandos would would have a drastic impact on the morale of the forces right which and they were, they had the luxury to take such a decision although they did not they could take such a decision because they were working to save hostages and not kill terrorists and saving hostages part was taken care of right so today when i say we need a paradigm shift we need a shift in policing i it's all right to have uh, nsg regional hubs everywhere but that's not going to solve the problem the nsg has serious drawbacks which we can talk about eventually but the point is that the police first responder must be able to you know move in the direction of fire take on the terrorists so a swarming attack needs to be met with a swarming response hmm. okay so here is a group that wants to just you know go on firing and move as far as possible you limit their uh, movement okay so that's how you judge the success of counter terrorism so tomorrow if a fidayan attack happens worst case scenario right all our intelligence inputs have, have fallen on deaf ears everything has failed so there is an attack if you can make sure that these guys have come equipped to say have launch a long held war for some 3 4 days but they end up killing only say 10 11 people by when uh, the this is what happened in gurdaspur right so that needs to be regarded as counter terrorist success okay on the notes of a paradigm shift let's take a small break here did you know that parsis in mumbai instead of being left at the tower of silence after they die are now cremated and why because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s did you know that the smog in delhi is caused by something that farmers in punjab do and that there's no way to stop them did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in bhopal but three one of them was seen but two were unseen did you know that many well intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help why was demonetization a bad idea how should gst have been implemented why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people i'm amit varma and in my weekly podcast the seen and the unseen i take a shot at answering all these questions and many more i aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Welcome back to the Pragati podcast. We're sitting here with Dheeraj talking about the 2611 attacks. So Dheeraj you were talking about how there's fundamentally a paradigm shift that's taking place with 2611, right? This is a terrorist attack that's very very different from any other terrorist attack that's happened in modern history simply because it's state sponsored. Um they have a lot of backing from uh, people who know counterterrorism uh, and we spoke about uh, control contain negotiate and how that paradigm didn't really work in 2611 right right uh tell us more tell us about the responders because there's been a lot of talk about the nsg right um so how did they fare 
Okay, so the primary role of the NSG was to save as many hostages as possible. Hmm. It was not eliminating the terrorists. That was only eventually, right? And they did fare really well in that because they had to go around checking 1,500 rooms individually and every time they went to a room, it's it's quite obvious that the uh, occupant of the room wouldn't open the door because he's under the fear of not knowing who's on the other side of the door. So they did that. They carried out the operation very well. They saved more than 800 people and all that was done. But today, when we sit here 10 years after uh, 2611, we need to look at some of the areas that really needed uh, improvement in the NSG, right? Now, you will have people talking about equipment, uh, the weapons and all that. And those are all given. They have to change. But we are a poor country and we lack interest in all this. The funding is always a problem and all that. But fundamentally, there is, there is a problem with the NSG. I said the NSG was based on the GSG-9 and also of the France uh, GAG. But the, both, the, both the foreign organizations are under their home ministry. Now, we in India, the NSG comprises of... Uh, Special Action Group and a Special Rangers Group. Okay, so two groups. But the composition is made of Central Armed Police Forces as well as the personnel from the Armed Forces. So it's paramilitary forces and military yes, forces. Yes, it's both okay. of them, right? It's under the MHA, but uh, the decision-making authority is also, again, uh, it's it, it's not clear-cut out, you know. So there is an overlapping between the so two. So you're saying the NSG comes under our Ministry of Home Affairs. Yes. But it's made up of paramilitary and military people. Yes. And we don't know who's calling the shots. Is right, that right, right. It's... it's it's not about not knowing who's, who calls the shot because there's always a des- designation there. But the point is you can't expect people to cooperate. Like for instance, the guy, the intelligence uh, officer who was there, the officer who, was, who had the role of uh, gathering intelligence on that particular day, he was somebody, I think he was a CISF officer, that is a Central Industrial Security Force officer with no experience at all in intelligence. Right? So these are the, uh, some of the glaring deficiencies that uh, NSG has. So today, you may have hubs across the country, but if you're having people who come on deputation from one uh, department to the NSG, you don't really have any institutional memory. So you so people come from various forces. Two, three uh, years and then they go. Years. They just go wow. back. So, so they don't grow in the NSG? Yes, there is nothing called an NSG, NSG carder, for instance. You know, okay. So if you want the NSG to be an elite force, that is what you're meant to do. You're supposed to train day in and day out to conduct these kind of operations. You rehearse for it. I mean, so that is what, you know, it, it has to flow from the political level. So they need to task this particular group for... To, you know, to conduct these kind of operations. After they task them, intelligence, uh, weapon training and everything has to go in that format. And eventually these commandos, the black cats, need to know that, look, we are here to do this job. We don't have to go back to elsewhere after this. But as long as you have people coming on deputation, there is seriously going to be a problem. So all those chaps who were there who uh, in 2016, who fought so bravely in 2611, who saw firsthand what the, the kind of problems they faced, they're all gone back to their parent carders. I don't know what they're doing today. They're no more there in, in the NSG. So as long as things like this don't change. So to wind up, if I had to tell two things, one, the NSG has to undergo this, organize, they have to rectify this organizational flaw and our first responders need to grow. The first one was created by the Mumbai police and Delhi uh, police now they have their own uh, SWAT unit. The Punjab police has. I don't think Bangalore police and all, all of these have uh, any SWAT units. So we need to get all these so-called uh, sensitive locations or big cities. They need to get SWAT units but again, like I said, their working assumptions need to change. They can't work on the assumption that they're going to be hostages and we can negotiate. Terrorists in the future that who come from Pakistan, they're not here to negotiate. They're here to negotiate in a different way. Their negotiation happens. The whole act of terrorism is, is them negotiating with you, letting you know that, look, we're not here to listen to you. You better listen to us. So to counter this kind of a threat, our first responders need to be active and the SWAT needs to undergo an organizational change. Yeah.
Dheeraj, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you here uh, 10 years after 2611 and to talk about how to truly understand what happened then. And it is truly sad that even 10 years later, not enough people know about what happened, why it happened, how it happened, and what are the real lessons to be learned. So thank you for helping us in that journey. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. You can also read more of Deeraj's writing on intelligence on the Pragati site, which is www.thinkpragati.com. I also have some personal news, as I'd mentioned at the start. This will be my last episode hosting the Pragati podcast. When we began the show, I did not know what we were undertaking doing this week after week. But the Pragati podcast has grown to a show that people know and appreciate and I'm grateful to have been part of it. I'm particularly grateful to people who tune in every Thursday just to listen to us. But this doesn't mean the end of my journey with audio. You will hopefully hear more from me in the coming weeks and months. If not on this show, then a new one. So on that note, thank you for listening to the Pragati Podcast. You can listen to the Pragati Podcast on the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts from. Pavan Srinath will be back next week with your policy fix. Do you have a night routine? Well, everyone has one. And the to-do list usually looks like this. Brush your teeth, set that alarm, get into your pajamas and switch off those screens. But here's one more to add to that list. Tune into the Positively Unlimited podcast for a dose of positive action and tips on how to build powerful mindsets. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you tune into podcasts. Have you gotten yourself a gym membership and shown up only a few times? Are long working hours cutting your fitness goals short? How about you change things a little? Even a small effort can make a big difference. And I'll tell you how and what exactly. Hi guys, I'm Coach Urmi and on the Kinetic Living Podcast, you can look forward to some interesting stories of people who have changed the way they look at fitness after their kinetic journeys. Episodes out every Wednesday on the IBM app, website and anywhere you get your podcast from.